The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 34, Watergate Journalism, Its Bitter Harvest. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. Hello, I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. As we covered in the past episode, the post-Watergate journalism was the proof of concept of the modern project of investigative journalism. It is our thesis here that even though society, and certainly the world of journalism, did not consider this reporting to be fraudulent, it nonetheless gave rise to journalism that is not only partisan, but is also, as a necessary result thereof, deceitful. How so? As I explained earlier, once an investigative journalist gets a target, the idea is not to tell both sides. Investigative journalism is more properly termed prosecutorial journalism. If a prosecutor can put on his evidence without defense counsel, how fair a trial would ensue? Of course, it would not be fair, but fraudulent. One must always be careful about any one-sided presentation, because fraud, especially without an opposing party to fill in the blanks, occurs whenever a truthful, full treatment of a subject requires more facts than are told. For this reason, whenever a company offers securities for sale to the public, the SEC makes sure that the offeror discloses all facts, not only positive and hopeful, but also negative and cautionary to the public on pain of criminal guilt. It is the burden of this episode to show how, in fact, modern investigative journalism now regularly reports major stories deceitfully, all as a result of Watergate. In this episode, we will examine some important, highly publicized scandals to determine whether substantial deceit by the major media defrauded the public of the true narrative, or at least of the true narrative as one possibility. Let me start in an odd place, Mark felt. In the wake of Watergate, it seems that, understandably, every politician wished to get in on the reformist wave sweeping a shell-shocked nation. One of the most impactful public examinations in the wake of Watergate was the Church Committee, named after Idaho Senator Frank Church, the investigation of intelligence agency abuses. What was odd about this investigation was that during Watergate, the CIA had been pictured as an innocent target of President Nixon, and the FBI had, on the whole, been exemplary. To be sure, its interim director, L. Patrick Gray, had permitted the White House through John Dean's office to sit in on FBI witness interviews during Watergate. Later, Gray was forced to admit he had, at the behest of Dean, destroyed sensitive documents found in Howard Hunt's safe. But outside of the misconduct of this politicized hack, really an acolyte of a seemingly corrupt White House, the FBI had been incorruptible, performing in excellent fashion. During the church hearings, there were presented some past examples of FBI abuses, mainly those of William Sullivan, the Beto Noir of Mark Felt, who was behind the infamous COINTELPRO, a legitimate intelligence program infiltrating terrorist groups, but which unfortunately introduced agents provocateur too readily into these groups. 
In the course of the investigation, it was determined that the FBI had conducted warrantless covert searches of both PLO, that's the Palestinian Liberation Organization targets, and, more concerning, the residences of, quote, above ground, unquote, supporters of the weather underground wanted by the FBI for the bombing of over 50 government facilities. 140 lower-level FBI agents, as a result, were investigated by the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, red-hot, righteous young prosecutors seeking an FBI scalp. Mark Felt threw a monkey wrench into these prosecutions by publicly admitting he approved these searches and that they were proper national security incursions in his view. Felt told that not only to the grand jury, but to television's Face the Nation in August 1976. Angering the young liberal prosecutors, the attorney general ultimately determined, as a result of Felt's actions, to dismiss these cases. After much debate, the prosecutors persuaded the grand jury to indict Felt for violation of the civil rights of the Weather Underground supporters. What does this have to do with journalism? Well, the Washington Post wrote editorials urging the Justice Department to indict Felt and was its biggest public cheerleader for Felt's conviction. Ignorantly on the part of the court in that case, and reprehensibly on the part of the prosecutors, the judge was persuaded by the prosecutors to instruct the jury to presume Felt guilty. Why? because he did not have a written note from the Attorney General giving him permission, never a requirement in 1972, a requirement put in in 1977 by President Ford's former Attorney General, Edward Levy. The post-cheerleading was both ignorant and partisan. How can we be sure? As we explained in earlier podcasts, national security trumps the Bill of Rights, and a Fourth Amendment warrant is not required if true national security is at issue. In 1940, we could shoot Adolf Hitler if the president said so, even if we were not yet at war with Germany. And George Washington could put down the Whiskey Rebellion without obtaining warrants. But what is our proof that this is so? The passage of FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which clearly approved of what Felt did. A FISA warrant is most assuredly not a Fourth Amendment warrant, but the passage of FISA clearly approved of what Felt did. FISA does not require approval of a warrantless search by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, but such approval immunizes and protects agents from unfair prosecutions such as occurred with Felt. The whole purpose of FISA was to protect against cases like Felt's. The Post suppressed the true nature of the case made by Felt. Ironically, its iconic Watergate source on whom it depended for truthful analysis during Watergate. But even if the Post was partisan and was wrong about Felt's weather underground searches, how did that harm society? First, the societal ignorance that the Post reporting engendered led to extreme, unnecessary remedies. Today, we all know that 9-11 was caused in part by the, quote, wall, unquote, artificially constructed between criminal investigations and national security intelligence surveillance. Never the twain could meet, it was decreed. Indeed, a court was dithering as to whether to allow the FBI to examine the computer of Zacharias Musawi at the time that airplanes hit the Twin Towers on 9-11. This is all to some extent a result of the dishonest reporting by the Post as to Felt's guilt in the weather underground searches. Mark Felt had warned in 1980 that society could not put its fingers in its ears pending the next terrorist explosion, which he thought would be the result of his prosecution, all, of course, engendered by the Post. 
But that is what happened in our way to two long wars. Felt was right, the post was wrong, and as a result caused many deaths. But there was more harm, more unintended consequences of media suppression of one side of an important debate. FISA was passed to protect agency as a result of the unnecessary prosecution of Felt, but it also immunized them when they fooled the FISA court. This FISA protection directly led to the horrid Russia gate fiasco, which caused our society years of turmoil. So what exactly did the Post miss? Its gold-plated source, Mark Felt, proclaimed loudly that a national security exception to the Bill of Rights existed. But the Post concealed and suppressed this defense, of which most members of the public would be ignorant. When the paper could have enlightened the public, it kept it shrouded in darkness for its own partisan political purposes. After all, the FBI was conservative, and White House was now controlled by the Carter administration, and the Weather Underground supporters were nice liberals. How about we would suggest telling both sides of this debate? Where else has partisan concealment caused large-scale society ignorance and harm. In 2003, in the wake of the Iraq invasion resulting from 9-11, the left in America sought to discredit the basis for this war. After an anti-Iraq war New York Times op-ed by former Ambassador Joseph Wilson, a columnist Robert Novak mentioned that Wilson's wife, Valerie Plain, worked for the CIA in its research into Iraq weapons of mass destruction. Plame and the CIA then screamed that release of her name, her identity as a CIA agent, was prohibited by the Foreign Agents Identification Act, which seeks to prevent foreign agents that are undercover from getting killed or harmed. The Post immediately echoed the CIA, as did the New York Times, and demanded prosecution of the leaker. Acting Attorney General James Comey named a special prosecutor, Patrick Fitzgerald, to investigate. Eventually, as a result, the chief deputy to Vice President Dick Cheney Louis Scooter Libby was indicted by the grand jury for falsely denying leaking Plame's name to another reporter, not to Novak. This prosecution now consumed all the air in the room of public discussion. As part of a narrative that Libby was helping Cheney hide the Bush administration's lies about the basis for the war. This narrative was made into a hit movie with Sean Penn and Naomi Watts. It was a good movie. However, it simply lacked the truth and the full story about what happened here. So what was the problem with this reporting? Well, the Post and Times suppressed the fact that first, Plame's name was relevant to show that Wilson's portrayal was less than honest. In other words, it was helpful to full and fair reporting. More importantly, leaking Plame's name was not a crime, as Fitzgerald later admitted, an admission drowned out by the sensational indictment of Libby. Yes, when our society reasonably should have been examining the basis for the Iraq War, we concentrated on the political bread and circuses of the Libby prosecution, which, of course, helped post circulation. But was this brouhaha good for society? Obviously not. Now let us proceed to Russiagate, where the FBI surveilled the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency using the protection of FISA to hide a false and politically motivated narrative put forth by the FBI to the FISA court. The absurd narrative, of course, was this. The Trump campaign was conspiring with Putin to subvert the 2016 election. Of course, the Post deliberately championed the false narrative to the great harm of our country. But how was the Post to know enough to report the other side of this story that maybe, just maybe, this may be an absurd tale with no foundation other than a campaign smear by the Clinton organization? 
The Post's willful failure to tell both sides to the public is obvious to anyone looking back on this and was obvious at the time to anyone who knew just a smidgen more than the public. How did the Post falsely report on this? The so-called Steele dossier was the basis for the FBI's obtaining the FISA warrants, allowing it to investigate Trump. In early 2017, BuzzFeed printed out one version of the full dossier, which immediately led to the identification of one Sergi Million as a key witness to the alleged Trump-Russia conspiracy. So how did the Post treat key witness Sergi Million? Highly uncritically, highly respectfully, and highly deceptively. On March 29, 2017, before the Mueller-Russiagate investigation began, but nine months after Comey's FBI had opened the Russiagate investigation, the Washington Post blared a front-page story that had uncovered Million as, quote, Source D of the dossier, who related the salacious peeing prostitute tale. That is, that Trump had prostitutes pee on a Moscow hotel bed. Deep in the article, the Post casually mentioned that Million was also Source E, seemingly Steele's alternative nomenclature for Million. But, not disclosed in the article, Source D, a supposed Trump loyalist, had a far different alleged source of knowledge than Source E, a Kremlin insider. That Source D and E were the same person should have been a stunning revelation, showing both Steele's deception and the absurdity that one source could know both sides of an explosive international conspiracy, while he would eagerly risk his life by blabbing it. Rather than concluding that the narrative was likely a canard, the Post observed in this article that Trump, quote, was unable to shake the Russia story, unquote while portraying Million as either a, quote, shrewd businessman, unquote, or, quote, a bystander unwittingly caught up, unquote, in the scandal, and likely, quote, a little of both, unquote. Think of James Stewart and the man who knew too much. How else did the Post deceive in this piece? by omission or affirmative misrepresentation. Well, any superficial look into Million would yield the strong probability that Million was a low-level Russian intelligence asset. He had been a military translator for the Russian government when he lived in the Soviet Union. This should have been an obvious tip-off. In America, he had been associated from time to time with Russo Trudnestvo, a Russian cultural goodwill exchange program widely known as a vehicle for Russia to pick up sympathetic future assets in America. And he held himself out as president of a very flimsy, do-little organization called the Russia America Chamber of Commerce. Again, the type of outfit that is often used by foreign countries as a recruitment front. His office was an unprepossessing flat on Astoria Avenue in the Queens. Was this a fellow who first was credible and secondly was in a position to know both ends of an international conspiracy? But none of this analysis was disclosed, and instead the Post treated him as a prosperous businessman with solid credibility, not as a poseur with shady Russian connections. The Post knew that Million could show no real connection to Trump. His sole proof of connection to Trump was his insertion of himself into a posed picture of Trump with a wealthy businessman in Florida a decade earlier. But as we alluded earlier, the most damning evidence against the Post was its concealment of the profound problem posed by Millions being both Source E and Source D, not obvious to an intelligent reader. These two alleged sources were a Kremlin insider and a Trump campaign insider. Let's pause and think for a moment how impossible it would be for Million to have been both, not to mention impossible for him to have been either. 
If in this first publicity belt million, it was highlighted rather than concealed, Russiagate may have died a warning. After all, this would have shown Steele's dossier to have been cooked up to falsely show a conspiracy where none existed. Combined with Million's likely role as a low-level Russian asset, the whole project would have smelled phony. Moreover, Christopher Steele was reported by the Post to have been a respected former British spy, but any slight investigative digging would have shown that his main client, through his company Orbis, was none other than Oleg Deripaska, a Russian aluminum oligarch close to Putin, for whom Steele wrote reports to the various U.S. governmental agencies in a way that helped Deripaska. These treatments of Million and Steele are just two examples of deceitful Post reporting which suppressed the truth. After Trump's election, the Post actively assisted the FBI's efforts to trap Trump insiders. In late 2016, around December 28, incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn talked to Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak to calm any Russian reaction stemming from President Obama's sanctioning of a number of Russian representatives in the wake of so-called Russian electoral interference. Soon after this perfectly proper conversation, David Ignatius of The Post leaked that the holdover Obama justice officials were considering prosecuting Flynn for violation of the Logan Act, 200-year-old act never successfully prosecuted forbidding a private citizens from conducting foreign affairs. So the Post made Flynn wary. Soon, however, the Post published that the Justice Department was now not inclined to prosecute Flynn for this act. So Flynn was wary, but not so much that he would be forthcoming. Then, as FBI Director James Comey admitted, he sent two agents to the White House in Trump's first days, knowing that it was not yet organized and had not yet set up a system of curating and managing FBI queries of officials. The two agents, acting relaxed, casually dropped in on Flynn and innocently asked Flynn if he spoke to Kislyak about sanctions. Flynn said he didn't remember, he didn't think so. Then the Post leaked that Flynn had lied, and as well lied to Vice President Mike Pence about the same subject. Quickly, Flynn was forced to resign while the Rushgate narrative was now enforced. Trump thus lost his key national security advisor based upon a trapping plot helped by the active involvement of the Post. So I ask, is our country helped when the president's key national security advisor, who he trusts, is removed? How many Kurds might still be alive today had Flynn not been drummed out of his office by the Post? And how helpful is it that a president would feel boxed in if he wished to be accommodating to Russia, if he thought that would help America's interests? Clearly, for the Post, politics did not end at the water's edge. Another tableau. In spring 2019, in an upset, Ukraine President Petro Poroshenko was defeated by challenger Vladimir Zelensky. Ukraine at the time was a strategically important, quote, jump ball, unquote, between Russia and NATO influence, clearly in our best interest to fight corrupt Russian influence in a highly corrupt country. Foreign aid for anti-Russian weaponry had been allocated to Ukraine on the condition that the State Department certified that Ukraine had corruption under control. The State Department so certified, but a month before the newly elected Zelensky was to take office. Clearly, there was now a corruption issue because Zelensky was sponsored by the most corrupt and violent of all Ukrainian oligarchs, Igor Kolomoisky. 
Kolomoisky had pilfered $5.6 billion in foreign aid through his Privat Bank, leaving a $5.6 billion hole for the U.S. to fill. And during the time of his pilfering, this is before 2016, Vice President Joe Biden was America's Ukraine point man for, for the purpose of fighting corruption. But Kolomoisky was represented by Biden's son, Hunter Biden, while Kolomoisky took the $5.6 billion under the vice president's nose. Do you get this picture? In 2016, as VP Biden was sure to leave office, no matter who won the election, Kolomoisky fled Ukraine. He reappeared after Zelensky's election, seeking, incredibly, to get his bank back, which had been seized. Before Zelensky took office, but after his election, Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani learned much about apparent Biden-centric corruption in Ukraine, especially, of course, through Hunter Biden. And after the election of a new president, the prior State Department certification of non-corruption was now seemingly inapplicable. Trump, clearly not a fan of Biden's, asked Zelensky on one phone call to investigate Biden corruption while holding up foreign aid for weapons, something, of course, within the national security powers of the commander-in-chief. Now, because of this one phone call, with great post-support, Trump was impeached. But nothing about Zelensky's connection to Kolomoisky and Biden was ever revealed by the Post. With Trump now under fire, Zelensky was not pressured to break with Kolomoisky. Meanwhile, Kolomoisky not only brazenly sought return of his bank, but also casually mentioned that Ukraine had to return to Russian influence. And this was a man who had great power over Zelensky. I ask, did post-suppression of these facts help America or did it hurt America? Finally, in the fall of 2020, the post suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story calling it absurdly Russian disinformation, even though the foundation was solid that this was Hunter Biden's laptop put forth by a repairman. The laptop showed that, contrary to Joe Biden's previous adamant denials, he actively helped his son with a Ukrainian client connected to Kolomoisky and his venture Burisma. The laptop also revealed Hunter's candid written remark to his daughter that he shared half his fees with his father. Since Hunter was also involved with our key adversary, China, this admission is of great concern. 9% of Biden voters say they would have reconsidered their vote for Biden had they known about this laptop story. These are just a few examples of American foreign policy issues which have all been adversely affected by deceitful post-reporting. It is one thing for a paper to publish partisan op-eds about favoring the paper's party or candidate. That is fair play. But deceit as to the reporting of important facts for the American public is just not acceptable. How does this darkness, this suppression of key facts, affect our democracy? The Post answers that question on its masthead with each of its issues. Quote, democracy dies in darkness, unquote. The Post is absolutely correct in this expression. Since Watergate, the Post has kept America in the dark about important issues for partisan purposes. Other papers have reported likewise. This is the bitter harvest of the post-Watergate journalism. On this note, we end our own reporting on post-fraud and deceit in its journalism, all begun as it bamboozled the public so successfully in its Watergate reporting. How this can be remedied, I leave to democratic discussion and debate. With this episode, we conclude the mysteries of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I've just completed a book on the same subject entitled The Mysteries of Watergate. 
what really happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.